Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome our guest for this podcast, Dr. Jim Krieger. Jim is a physician and also trained in public health and is chief of the chronic disease and injury prevention section at Public Health of Seattle and King County. He's also a clinical professor of medicine and health sciences and attending physician at the University of Washington. Dr. Krieger is a nationally recognized expert in the development and evaluation of community-based chronic disease control and prevention programs and doing uh, what many in the country believe is uh, cutting-edge and courageous work addressing non-communicable diseases. So, Jim, welcome. No, thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. So the topic of this podcast is the transformation of public health. And this is something that I've heard you speak about, and I think it's extremely interesting how the whole public health community is being transformed and looking at, at, at pressing public health issues in a different way. Could you explain a little bit about your thinking on that? Yeah, I think the we've seen a transformation of the leading causes of illness and death in our communities and the called the epidemiologic transition, where chronic diseases now account for, by far and away, the, the, the greatest loss of life and quality of life. And the public health approach in the past has been based on the fact that we have to change people's behaviors so that they have better diets and they get more exercise and they stop smoking. And the approach to that behavior change was was pretty much a one-to-one educational, let's work with each person and teach them the right tools and then they'll, they'll adopt healthier behaviors. And what we've seen over the time when that particular approach to public health has been ascendant is that the behaviors have not improved very much and some cases have gotten worse. And so that's caused people to look afresh at what are the things that really make people choose whether to engage in a healthy behavior or less healthy behavior. And the realization that it's the environments that people find themselves in the course of the day, whether it's at work or school or home or play, um, that really affects the choices that they make and the choices of what behaviors to engage in. And so can we, the question then became, is can we identify what those factors are in those environments and change them so that the healthy choice becomes the easy choice? So this idea that... Um that individual-oriented educational-type approaches haven't been working might seem counterintuitive to some people because you go back to the original philosophy that we just need to work with people one at a time and inspire them to change your behavior. Why haven't those worked better? There are a couple of reasons, I think, why that doesn't work. First, probably for people to change your behavior takes place over a long period of time and requires multiple attempts. And most, many of the behavioral education programs have been too short in duration and too low in intensity. And then the flip side is if they become high enough in intensity to have a sufficient impact, they become too expensive and costly and not very practical. So I think the other thing that we found is you can educate people about what a healthy food is or that they should be active for 30 minutes every day. And then if they go back to environments which don't provide them with the opportunities to be active or give them the opportunity to um, find healthy food or expose them constantly to less healthy food where it's the easy and cheap thing to grab, then then all the education in the world can't change that if you're not exposed to an environment which makes it easy to act on that new knowledge. So this issue of food in particular where there are two fundamental problems, lack of access to healthy food and too much pressure to eat the, the unhealthy foods. It's something we'll come back to in more detail in the second podcast. Mm-hmm. But you talked about public health as a community changing its thinking away from these individual-oriented approaches to changing environments. Could you give some examples of this? 
I think that the classic example is in tobacco at this point. And one of the major contributors to the declining rates of tobacco use have been to create smoke-free places. And it began with airlines, and and then it moved on to restaurants and bowling alleys and bars. And what that does is it creates both a disincentive to smoke because you can't smoke in those places. It changes what people believe about smoking from it being a health, or at least a neutral habit, a pleasure, to something that's actually quite unhealthy. And by changing those that whole social set of beliefs and values and making it more difficult, people don't take it up as much and they're more likely to quit. Okay, and would price of the product be another issue of these? That's another great example. Besides the secondhand smoke laws, the other major contributor to tobacco, is, as the poster child, is the price. The price, when it goes up, people buy less. And the same things are true of soda and other kind of products that are less healthy for you. So let's talk, this is going to be a broad question, but Mm -hmm. I'd be curious about your answer. Overall, do you think the environment that most people live in supports or undermines health? I think in a contemporary American society, I would say it leans towards undermining health. And we've had a big change in the way our communities are organized and planned and what people are exposed to in the media um, over the last 50 years. And now it's showing up in our waistlines. It's showing up in diabetes rates. It's showing up in all the chronic diseases that we're struggling. We've basically created an environment that breeds chronic disease, just like in the um, 19th century cities, it bred infectious disease. So in order to change this, are you talking about fundamental changes in the ways communities are planned and developed and laid out and things? I think that will make a big contribution. In, um, in the past, if you go turn the clock back 20 or 30 years, 70% of kids walked to school. At present, maybe 10% walk to school. And that's a direct result of creation of suburbs, of places without sidewalks, of schools built long distances from where people live. That's just one example. But there's a growing body of evidence that's convinced me that the way our cities are laid out and what the streets look like and where cars go and where people go and if there are bike trails has an influence on how active people are, for example. Another big change in the way um, our, our society has been organized and developed is the concentration of food production into the hands of a few small and very powerful companies who then in turn d- determine and script what we eat, in effect. And so while there might be an illusion of choice about food, actually much choice has been taken away from our options to eat local and healthy food, for example. So I think there's been really fundamental changes in both the ways communities laid out and the way society as a whole has been organized to produce its food. Let's talk, if you will, a little bit more about this idea of communities being laid out. You mentioned the idea of streets. Mm-hmm. How, how are those configured now, and how might they be configured in order to promote health? So if you look at a typical suburb around a, a major city, for example, they're laid out in um, cul-de-sacs and dead-end streets. And if you wanted to actually visit a neighbor because there are fences across all the yards, you might have to walk all the way around to the end of your cul-de-sac, go down to the next cul-de-sac, and walk there. And there's no destinations to go except maybe visiting a neighbor. There's no stores. There's no parks. There's no places people would want to walk to. If you redesign a community to make it so that the streets are laid out in a grid pattern, like a normal Um, more traditional city. And if there are places to walk, like a park or a cafe or a place to shop or a place to eat, um, the evidence shows that people will walk more and be more active. We've had some experience in Seattle working in even public housing communities where we've taken those principles that are loosely called new urbanism and applied them to um, public housing communities, for example, and people find their communities to be much more walkable 
Could you say a little bit more about that and what is it that what is actually taking place in these housing communities? So in these public housing communities, we've laid it out so their streets are now um, separated from the pedestrian walkways. There are trails. They're laid out in a grid pattern. There are a pond to walk to. There are pocket parks people can walk to. And we then found that by having a physical environment like that and then adding to it, and this is actually an important point, a supportive social environment so people aren't afraid to walk and that they see their neighbors walking and that they get social interaction by walking. People are out more, and they will tend to be more active that way. Does this have to be combined with education that would motivate people to do things, or if you just create the structural environment change, people will do it on their own? I think it's both. I think it's a yes and. So I think you need to create both the social environment um, and the physical environment, that, 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 and then people will do it. So we found, for example, early in the public housing development work that people weren't using the pocket parks as much, and they weren't walking on the trails as much as we hoped. So then we set up walking groups to help people get launched, and they loved the walking groups. And then even after the walking groups stopped, they kept walking. That's really nice. So you're, you've talked about a very creative example happening in Seattle. Are there other signs around the country of these sort of things happening in communities? I think you can see it in many communities where you, where you work. Um, New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all of them are putting in bike lanes so people can ride more safely on their bicycles. They're putting in walking paths. The zoning laws and all these and construction laws are all changing, so there's an emphasis now on building what are called complete streets, which might have a pedestrian separation with a buffer zone of trees and plantings, then a bike lane, and then separated physically by a curb from where the cars are driving. So you have ways that people can get around in all three modes of transport, and we know that people will walk and bike more if they feel safe doing it that way. So your your basic premise is that individual-oriented programs, just trying to educate people, are limited in several ways. They may not work very well, and even if they do, you couldn't have enough money to work with people one at a time to scale them up to have a big, broad impact. Um, and the, the, the second part of your premise is that these structural environmental changes will make more sense because they cost a lot less and they can last a lot longer because the law might be changed. Could you explain a little bit about that concept? Yeah, that's so. So, if, if you want to make some changes, let's take an example that's come up most recently in the very topical school meals. So, if you want to make school meals healthier and have kids eat healthier foods, um, you could try to go school by school and teach the dietitians different ways to cook things. Or you could have a new U- U.S. Department of Agriculture policy change that says, here's what a healthy meal looks like, and we expect you, the schools to follow it, and then provide the schools the support and training they need to meet that new standard. And I don't think it's hard to guess which is going to be more effective in terms of rapidly changing the quality of food that's served to all our students around the country. Well, if you're doing things school by school, then you have to rely on uh, an institutional memory that will last a long time as the school principal changes and the school staff changes Mm -hmm. and the PTA changes over and things like that. Whereas if it's written in the law, then it's just there and it's there for a long time. And it's also, and you're not as dependent on having someone who happens to take an interest in making the meals healthier, for example. Everybody's going to be doing it. Right. Um, So it sounds like you're optimistic that these changes are beginning to occur around the country. Is there any evidence that we can point to that these structural changes are more effective than traditional educational methods? You mentioned tobacco as one example. Are there others? Um, that's a good question. I think that we're early in these changes when it relates to food and physical activity to be able to make definitive conclusions about that. 
Um, however, I think we're, we are seeing, we can take soda as an example, maybe we'll come back to this more later, where for the last now probably decade, soda cons- consumption of sugary soda, sweetened soda, has actually been declining. And that's been a result of changes in people's attitudes and beliefs about what's healthy for them, which has come from social change and media campaigns. But I think it's also come from people seeing that these laws are getting passed that are making it harder for people to access soda by what is served in public vending machines, for example. So I think that's a, I think there are other examples if we want to go into it more, but I think we're seeing that. Well, the fact that these laws are being passed, do you think that's a sign that uh, political, fi- political people get it? get this idea that instead of just pumping a lot of money into education, these environmental changes are occurring. I would, I mean, my own impression is the answer that's yes. I'll be curious to see what you say. But if you look at the school nutrition legislation, for example, the government's not putting a bunch of money into teaching nutrition education to kids one by one by one. They're just changing the rules about what foods can be served in schools. But does it seem to you that politicians get this conceptual shift? I think it depends which politicians you're mm-hmm. talking about. So I think this particular concept goes right to the heart of the great debate in American politics right now, which is what's the role of government versus individual responsibility um, in any realm of society. And it's the same here. So some politicians will think that it's up to the individual to make the choice. It's a free market and give them information and education and they will do the right thing. And I think there are those of us, others, politicians who have seen that doesn't work and we can't afford that. And we need to try an approach where we can help people make it easier to make the right choice. Well, thank you for the background on this. We'll soon go on to the second podcast where we'll talk about changes in the food environment, particularly that Mm -hmm. you've been able to accomplish in Seattle, which I believe are very impressive changes. So thank you very much for joining us. Good. It's my pleasure. Our doctor, our doctor, our (laughs) guest rather, was Dr. Jim Krieger physician and trained in public health and chief of the chronic disease and injury prevention section at Public Health of Seattle and King County. Thank you.